everybody, and welcome to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and as always, I'm here with Sarah. And today we have a special guest, Helena Paul, who is going to share her story. And Helena, take it away. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Hi, so my colonial name is Helena Paul. Uh, my um, traditional name is Slashliot, and it was given to me by the late Rena Peter, Rita Point. And yeah, I canoe pulled with her family for quite some years, and she sort of took me in and gave me this pet name, Slashly, which means ladybug. And then later on in life, it was extended to the female version. So I'm the first version of Slashly Hot. Um, so I was born into uh, a larger family. So I have a kickbush side of my family, which is my mother's side of my family. And I think it's important to recognize um, they, they were um, settlers, and uh, they... Uh, had farmland over on the Kickbush plot by Luckacuck and Chilak River. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's where my mother grew up was here. And I was actually born in Chilliwack, but I didn't really live here. And my father is um, Arthur Paul from the Kamloops Indian Band. And my mother and father were married when I was, when my mother became pregnant with me. <laughs> Yeah, they met in here in um, Chilliwack. She'd already had three children as well from a previous marriage. So that was with Bob Hall. And I mention him because it's important because he adopted me in when I was 12. Yeah. So my mother and father obviously separated at um, a young age. I think I was about three or four. So I have the Kickbush, the Paul and the Hall family. So that connects me to this territory here in, in Stalo. I was born here in Chilliwack, um, but I also have family. And this is um, the, the only culture and traditions that I know is from the Stalo people. I'm very displaced um, from my original bloodlines and family, but I am Sequetmoch. And um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that and understand that. And, and it'll tie a bit into um, my story as well. So. I wanted to focus a little bit on my first, like the very formative years, because I know that has a lot to do with how you develop in your brain, how your brain develops, and then also your psyche and your emotional, mental, like everything. So the first zero to five years uh, were probably the most traumatic for me. However, there's this, there's a piece there. Um, I think that's really important to mention is that when my mom was pregnant with me, she had a sense and a thought that there was something different with me. And she just sort of knew and she wrapped her arms around her belly and she just knew that there was something and something that she wasn't able to harness or, or, or be able to, to cherish in the way that she would want to. And she wept. And this is something I felt in utero. And, um, and, and as everybody knows that, that, umbilical cord and being within your mother everyone has a very individual connection to that person and so my connection to my mom has always been really different and strong compared to my sisters and that's just they're just different right we there's no identical relationship between a mother and child none so that was kind of how how it was started and when I was born I was born into a world of chaos right away experienced violence. My father was very abusive to my mother. There was extreme neglect. Um, this was at a time when my mother started uh, drinking really heavily. Um, we were living on the Kamloops um, Reserve. 
So uh, we were left alone quite often with um, different babysitters or different people. My older siblings would often be taken to foster care, but back then they wouldn't take younger children. So I would be left alone sometimes with my mom and um, my dad. And so they would want to leave and and go party. So they would often drug me um, so that I wouldn't cry and they could just leave me. So before the age of five, I have been, so I was (laughs) drugged, um, neglected, experienced violence. I was raped. My mother tried to kill me at one point as well, um, tried to drown me and um, yeah, basically told me that she was going to effing kill me. I think I was four at that time. And yeah, so those were the main the main sort of issues that got me to where I started developing that disassociation. Um, I started developing that internal, I am garbage, I am awful, I'm just here to be used for somebody else's pleasures or pains or to be forgotten. That all internally began right at between the ages of zero and five. So struggling from then on was a really difficult thing. Identity was horrible. Didn't know who I was and what I was or any of that sort of stuff going on. But the one thing that I think about is that I was on my ancestors' territory. I was born on my ancestors' territory and I got to live in my ancestors' territory. They recognized who I was in my physical form. They knew who I was and they sort of followed me and kept with me um, the one of the biggest things that I didn't learn until I was 43, I think, when I had a conversation with my mom, that my grandfather on my father's side was actually there when I was born and spoke to me in Sequetmuch. And I don't, it's really such an important piece of your uh, knowing who you are is hearing that language because your 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 spirit and your ancestors understand that language even though your physical self may not at that time and so it connects you to to that lineage and to who you are and it gives you that strength and i swear even though i didn't know growing up um there was that spiritual guides that were helping me through quite a lot of things i was a quirky little kid and i was pretty smart and um Um, My dreams have always been extremely, extremely intense and extremely strong. Um, So a lot of like my, a lot of my processing is done through dream work, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Um, That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of things happen in my dreams, lots of visions, lots of messages and, and things like that. But the first, so I obviously I struggled quite a bit my mom moved us around well that was the other thing like we'd already moved four times by the time I was five too so that even that like you're not you're not learning how to be in one place and I still move today I've lived in Chilliwack for 26 years and I probably moved 20 times so that whole idea of that not rooting yourself still obtains today in a space where I've lived in for so long I still have that sort of inability to ground into that space and, and and to be who I am so I still really really struggle with that and um yeah so I wanted that's sorry I'm just looking at my notes so those were some things I really wanted to um make sure I understood right was that total ang- language in that piece 
um, being able to be tied into that ancestry and, and sort of learning. And my mom taught me a few things. Um, she was one of those uh, where she gained status when she married my dad. Um, yeah, so yes. weird. Uh, Sarah's yeah. from the States. And so she probably doesn't know about all of these like weird. That was in the 19. Yeah. The 1980s, you could still, you could still gain status if you married a native person. And if you, um, yeah, if didn't, then you lost it, right. Women would lose their status. So yeah, it was a very strange time. But the one thing that's interesting is my mom was always really attracted to that type of um, spirituality she was a bit of a rebel when she was younger as well. And of course I learned things as I was go- going along to find out things about my mom. Like later on, you know, like there was ups and downs all the time with my mom, right? Things that like very attentive to the point of being so aggressive, she'd sit with you for hours and argue and, and that. And then it was, there's just the abuse and like all these ups and downs. And by the time, just before going into middle school so just before going into your puberty and all of this my um my other sisters my older siblings had left and I had one sibling left to help protect me and she left as well and so I was left with my mom just before yeah trying to figure out how to even be a woman and what does that mean how does that mean to be a young person how does that mean to be a daughter a sister all of these different things like I had no real teachings around what that looked like. My mom dried up, but she became a dried drunk. So she was sober for so many years, but she was still very, there was still so much dysfunction. She just didn't know how to connect with us. And yeah, there was, by the time I was 12, I had started to really feel like I was like a doll that had just these parts pulled all over the place like I just felt like there was no real Helena and um I started drinking I started um smoking weed every once in a while um doing that kind of thing and uh got myself into some pretty precarious situations and ended up in a vehicle with a guy at night late he was older and there was an attempted rape or actually sorry it was a rape and after that, that's when I really lost everything. That's when I really went, okay, that's it. Like I, if this is what the world has given me, if this is what I'm supposed to be is to be just that person that gets used and abused, I'm done. And I remember um, looking at my sister because my sister came back after a year of being gone. And um, I remember just looking at her and going, I don't feel anything. And I remember her looking at me and she's like, what? And I'm like, I don't feel anything in here. My stomach and everything feels hollow. And she didn't know how to react to that. And I didn't even, I I didn't know how, like, I I feel like I explained it quite well, but I didn't know why I felt that. And dissociation was huge for you. Like, yeah, that, that sounds like that's kind of the prevalent peace throughout your whole journey at this point so how old were you right like when you were saying I was your sister? 13 right so you yeah. already knew for sure yeah I could feel that like there was something that wasn't connecting there was something I just was like walking zombie almost right and I would and I would just follow I'd look at what other people were doing and then I'd try those things on for myself right 
and there, but there was a few things that were definitely me. Like I was, I, like I said, I was kind of quirky and I was, I was a little bit smart, you know, I'd go and I'd, I was one of those kids that would go into reading competitions, you know, like, <laughs> and um, speeches I could do, I could get up in front of my entire school. I think it was in grade four, five, and six, I entered into speech competitions. So I was already that like a bit of an attention whore. So <laughs> it was already beginning, right? I could be funny and I could get that attention from folks. And so that, that was um, sort of helped me get through as well because it gave me a bit of that purpose. And I still do that today. Like I'm still that attention seeking person. Like I like that. Um, um, so, but I use it in different ways now, um, not just the impulsive and, and craziness, but those kind of, that helped bridge some things for me as I got older. But that was the turning point right there was when I said that to her and it was a, probably about three months after that, that um, was my first, um, you know, government paid staycation in a psych ward. So <laughs> my first one. Staycation, yes. yes. <laughs> what a place to have a vacation. Oh, Ho well, you know, I've had a couple Hopefully since. your roommates were okay. <laughs> well, that would, that, yeah, that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's the terrifying yeah. part of being yeah. hospitalized. But you know, and it was, and it was not a great experience at all and I don't know if anybody's ever had a great experience in a psych ward but for a 13 year four, four, 13 14 year old I think I was about 14 around then it was it was just a bizarre situation like I, I had eating disorders you know identity issues all that body stuff like just tons and and um, I became a study I was I was an object so there was tons of like nursing students and all that kind of stuff that were there and asking questions and I try to answer. But again, to me, it was just a game. It was just a game. It wasn't really like my real life because I was so disassociated from everything. I always mm -hmm. just watched life happening around me. It, it never felt like it was happening to me. Yeah. And I wonder if like you being feeling like the study felt like you were still being used in a different way now, right? Like did, did, was that part of your thinking at that point? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. So it just became kind of a game because they weren't really asking me questions. And I knew I could sense it because I like I've got I was an intelligent girl and I could sense that they weren't asking the right questions, but I wasn't going to help them. You know, um, I wasn't going to make it easier for them. So, um, yeah. And, and I was that type of young girl as well. Like I always questioned authority always. Like when I was a teen, like young, I was suspended from school a couple of times when I was in elementary school, you know? Um, yeah. I was always like the, you guys call it bold and beautiful, but I was that, but it didn't look that way to other people because it wasn't, the energy wasn't harnessed in a way that it could be. So it just looked like this loud, obnoxious sort of kid yet when you look at it there's the creative piece to it that never got acknowledged and never got um able to bring out so but I was diagnosed with um ADHD when I was in elementary school because of like the, my way I was I was always like anxious and up to thinking really quickly moving too fast um yeah those kinds of things so I would uh I ended up being diagnosed with ADHD. I think I was probably like grade two or three. I also had dyslexia, those things, but nobody said what's happening at home. 
I don't remember anybody asking me at that time. It was just more of like an observation of my behavior in school without a look at like or questions about like what's going on at home, you know, um, none of that. Whereas if somebody had said to me, well, what's your mother like? Or what had, well, oh, well, my mom basically beat my dog with a stick yesterday because she tripped over his chain. Like that's the kind of thing I'm dealing with at home. But it was always me. There must be something wrong with Helena. Well, and the dissociation is like, that's a coping mechanism for trauma. So like the fact that people aren't asking those questions about what happened to you as a child, what's happening to you now is awful because that's literally the coping mechanism it started to become all about like I obviously I'm always doing something wrong I'm not doing something right there's always something wrong with Helena you don't fit into this you don't fit into that you're not like yeah so that was that and that stays with you for life as well so even if things are going on in a room sometimes I'm like what did I do And that's part of that living in an abusive environment, right? You just don't know. And you'd never know when my mom was going to go off. She's like a ticking time bomb. Um, We walked on eggshells. You just, you know, and I spent a lot of time with my older sisters. They became more like my, my mom. I think when my, my, my sister remembers when she was nine, I used to call her mom. So, yeah. (laughs) So do you think that your mom or other people in your family have very similar traits in terms of the like intense emotions and anger, mood swings, that kind of thing. Oh, it kind of sounds like, yeah. Oh, definitely. Like each of us, like my brother was able, able to, to leave right away. He got, he got out of there when he was 12 and went and lived with his dad. And then later on, my other sister went, so we slowly started, but it caused a real disconnect between us as siblings. But yeah, every one of us has struggled. Every yeah. one of us has struggled with something. All of us have had to go to therapy. <laughs> all of us. I have mean, had everybody to should go to therapy also. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've all struggled with relationships. We've all had different types of issues, right? Because we've witnessed violence. Like Vicki Reynolds talks about how you don't witness or observe violence. Like if, if it's happening around you, you're ex- experiencing it internally. So we all did. So yeah. And I still to this day because of that disconnect and it can be a real hindrance but can also be a real real great tool like obviously it's a great tool if we if I didn't have the ability to be able to go into myself or to disassociate or even to step away sometimes from those emotions I don't know where else or what else I could have looked like as a child it could have been a lot more intense could have been a lot more as a teenager like I don't know but when it comes to things like this right now or being able to sit with somebody who is in in that traumatic state you're able to sort of take that calmness and be able to move forward in that situation instead of um adding to it so it can be so it can be a tool is what i'm i'm saying it can be a positive thing so uh but i did want to talk a little bit about the identity and 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 um struggling with that and even coming into to um, understanding and learning, like in my 20s, I was able to move back to Chilliwack. I was pregnant with my first daughter and um, was first child and um, didn't really know much. And cr- I spent a lot of time crying during that pregnancy because I was terrified for her to have to come into a world that I felt was just so 
awful. horrible. Yeah. yeah. And empty. And, and there was so much sadness and there wasn't a lot of joy and because I didn't get a, to, a, to experience that a lot. And I think as I got older, part of that was what fed some of my depression because I'd get so sad because, and, and I've learned now to enjoy and embrace those joyful moments that you get. You get these little breaths of like this freedom or these feelings of being in your body and experiencing happiness or being within your body and experiencing adrenaline of like mountain climbing or whatever, because there's so many times that I'm not experiencing that. There's so many times when I'm just sort of like, like just making it through the day, making it through. And so when you feel those things, it's like, oh, and it's kind of sad because you're like, it's not going to stay, but that's the human condition. That's the human condition in general, right? We have happiness, joy, sadness, disappointment, like, oh, so many things in one body, right? (laughs) wonder we're all Mm -hmm. a little loopy. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a, um, it becoming like understanding how it is to be a a woman in Stalo culture and to be a mother and to be an auntie and to be a sister and to be a daughter also brought about different, different things because you have the Western versions and the colonial versions of those things. And then you're learning these Stalo pieces of it and they don't always match, of course, And then there's another piece when you go into the spiritual piece of the longhouse, and then there's that, that also interplays. And mental health is not expressed in any of those areas. We don't talk about it, and we don't notice those things. And I don't see a lot of, like when I was growing up, I didn't see a lot of that even being discussed. I'm hoping that the next generation that will be discussed way more. That's, yeah. that's really my hope, because I think that that kind of leaves everybody in a lurch if we don't talk about it openly from the exactly. get-go. Exactly. Because if I, it wasn't until um, I had an, another horrible experience that occurred to me. Um, I had a um, sexually, sexual violence um, experience that happened about five years ago. And that's what set me into another, like it, like we talk about triggers. Well, this set me right for a loop. Like I was right back to square one. Cause I did do therapy in my early twenties. I did a lot of like on the sexual abuse and a lot of that. I, I did a lot of counseling and it's interesting that nobody caught on, but I was also a really good liar. Yeah. <laughs> I would cheat myself all the time. Cause I'd be like, well, I don't really want to go all the way into the truth. You know, I don't want really people to really know who I am because I've never expressed who I really am in front of anyone and, and been safe about it and had nobody treat me in a way. Right. So I'd always cheat my way out of it. That, and then I, that's where I started to spiral and the PTSD kicked in really bad and it was so intense. And then um work I started becoming a workaholic so I spent my time doing like three jobs trying to run away from that feeling that I didn't know was was there so I ended up in the hospital again and that's when I finally got the diagnosis for the the BPD when I started explaining to him my life and where I had gotten to and all of that that's when and then but it's a it's a gift to know 
because once you start looking and it's interesting too because i don't know if you've got you obviously you've you've been around it long you've known longer and you and you have this and you talk about it quite a bit and so you're learning more like when i first found out i was like reading everything on it everything mm-hmm. about bbd i was like what is it and it, it didn't see it seemed like something that nobody really knew much about and it was like yeah. this new thing or something and everything you read is so negative yeah i was like what yeah like people won't hire you and all this kind yeah. of stuff and i was like what because i've i've always been quite functioning i've always had to have you know be able to do different jobs but the beautiful thing is is i've always been in positions where not not beautiful but kind of fortunate but unfortunate fortunate for me because I need change I need things to switch I can't stick to anything for too long um so when I look back on things I was kind of like oh like a lot of things were a blessing in disguise it wasn't necessarily because of my disorder but it it was a gift learning about it because then it things made more my impulsivity made more sense my you know my 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 need to to catch that adrenaline rush or do something new or you know like run away from different things (laughs) I was always running from something hiding something suppressing something and it just it just got to the point where I just my body said I'm done I'm done and I can no longer keep this stress level um where it's at so this was after you were diagnosed yeah, this was this was how I got to being diagnosed. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So all of that, that, that the PTSD that became super, so depressed, I couldn't get out of bed sometimes. And then you add anxiety on top of that. So now you've got these three different things. And it's a deadly combination, because it literally can lead you to suicide because you're so anxious about everything. You can't function normally. You can't get out of bed. Sometimes you're terrified to go out the door because of the PTSD because I'm scared something's going to happen. And finally, my body couldn't, I couldn't keep up. I was getting to the point where my brain wouldn't, couldn't function. I couldn't think I couldn't find words. I was done. And I managed to call a friend of mine. And I was like, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And I was like, just crashed (laughs) and um, I didn't want to live anymore I was done and like not even my children kept would make me think oh I need to stay alive I actually got to the point where I was resentful towards my children for I was like you you should be able to live without me you know like just just done it was just too much and and it was exhausting and I was I couldn't get up another day and pretend I just yeah couldn't do it. And so when I went in, I was like, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to tell the truth. And then ever since that, it was like an egg, egg breaking open. And the chick is now allowed to grow and live, you know, because now I can blossom and I can be real and I can be okay and I don't know, process all of that information and try to make it work in a better way for me um, instead of trying to use it as another mask. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so I've only known about it for about two years now. And I did do another little loop because it was May that I ended up in the another staycation. (laughs) 
<laughs> May of 2018, I think, 2018. And then I was in again in 2019. And it was the anniversary date of the of the um, sexualized violence experience. And it took a whole year for me to figure that, that out. Um, so, yeah. But I've been in therapy and I've been um, working with, I just love her and I want to say who she is, but I'm, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. She already has a full client load. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I won't say, but I love But you her. have somebody that you love and that's amazing. And it took a while because the last person that I had, I think, I think we really need to differentiate between counseling and therapy. And because I thought counseling was a good thing and it was going to help, but it was really surface shit to me. It wasn't until I, I was like, I need a therapist. I need somebody who's going to ask me those tough questions, somebody who's going to give me those tools. And because the other one, it felt, and I don't know if it was just the counselor or what, but it felt so surface. And I know it, I know it was me too. I wasn't getting into it as much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I know a lot of, a lot of your relationship with your therapist, I say is it's like, it's like dating. You have to find the right one and it's okay to not be okay with the first one. And I didn't know that I was like, well, this is who I got. So we'll go with it. I was with her for like three, four years. And I was just, I just skimmed through it, you know, and I really cheated myself. So, um, so that, I think that's why this relationship with this therapist is is so much better because I, I've allowed myself to be more honest and to be more open and to really express myself. And she's been there through it. So um, been really given me tools to, to help me because like I said, some of that, um, the self-sabotage piece and the impulsivity piece and that black and white thinking I own that. I have it. I have the black and white thinking. I, I've always felt dichotomous. I've mm -hmm. always felt like this split between me. Always. I'm male. I'm female. I'm bisexual. I'm, you know, spirit and I'm human. And I've, I, I feel these things on a tremendous level that it always makes me feel like there's something still like there's still something in between. And yeah. How else to, to to describe that? I mean, geez, I'm even ambidextrous. Like, are you actually? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about black and white thinking all the time on this podcast because it's something that is just like in everyday life. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't. I can't get around it. And as much as I try, I and I'm 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 recover recovering recovered whatever you want to call it. Like, it's still something that I have to deal with a hundred percent. Yeah, because it either is or is it isn't. That's how I am. I'm like, yeah. and even in, even in the Halkamalem language, there's no, there's no word for should you either did or you didn't. And, oh, in Western interesting. Yeah, and in Western culture, that's very different. Oh, I try. Well, you don't, you don't try. You either did or you didn't. <laughs> and that's my I did not know thing. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very yeah interesting. Hey, and that's something that I really embraced so much when I learned about Letzimot. That whole word Letzimot means to be connected, interconnected to all living things and all living beings. And that's how I know that, that the importance of having my, my bare naked little baby feet walking on my ancestors' territory 
my little baby ears hearing the language that my grandfather was able to express to me and, and share with me that allowed my inner conscious and spirit to be able to hear those messages throughout my life. I had a dream when I was 16 years old and I remember waking up from it and I was bawling. And again, that emptiness that like, who am I and what am I? And like, why am I here? And all that kind of stuff. But I was sitting in this car in the back of this vehicle with um, this old man and he was old and he had these old native man and had long white hair and he was speaking to me in his language and I was sitting there and I and I knew everything he was saying to me was so important and so but I didn't understand it and I and then when I woke up I just cried because I was like I'm I'm an indigenous woman and I didn't know what it meant and it took years before I finally started to realize what it did mean yeah. I mean, and that's, that's one of the things that I find so interesting is that um, for the listeners that don't know, I, I work in first nations communities. That's how I know Helena and the trauma that has come because of the Canadian government. And I mean, the American government as well and colonization, assimilation, all of these things are just, to me, they seem like a breeding ground for borderline personality disorder. And uh, it's rarely talked about in, yeah. in communities. So that's one of the reasons that I want to talk to Helena so badly is because it, it makes so much sense to have this diagnosis because there's so much of that trauma just going on all the time because of the experiences of not just yourself, but previous generations that have just been completely like, I mean, the government was literally trying to wipe you out. Yeah. And then, and then it's, well, is that a disorder then, or is that a healthy coping mechanism to trying to fight against this government? essentially, which is not easy, right? Yeah, it's definitely not a disorder (laughs) to want to be able to live your authentic life. Definitely Mm -hmm. not. But it's definitely um, a side effect. (laughs) Like having those kinds of mental, uh, like it's a side effect of colonialism that I have an issue, like it is. Um, So many of our Indigenous people have have had to experience um, violence on a on a genocide level. I find the fact every day I live that violence. Um, the fact that I don't speak my own language is a complete stealing of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, making other people speak a language that has nothing to do with who they are and where they come from. Because even when I expressed what Letzimot meant or um, expressing certain words that like even the language we don't have should and shouldn't, it tells you about the cultural content of the people that speak those languages. They're yeah. very different. And even and, so, cause you're not from Stal, like your your ancestors aren't from Stalo. So you've learned Halkamalem just because you've lived in Stalo territory for so long. So you're still, do you speak any of Sequetma? Sequetma? No, no, no. And I know because there's, I know that that's the next stage in life for me is to really connect with my Sequetmo family. See, and then there's other things that I want to bring up, but sometimes I get nervous about it because there's gifts that in, there's certain gifts that um, people in humans in general will have in any culture and anywhere around the world. But there's gifts of being able to see things from the future gifts of being able to see spiritual people and you can see spirits and you could talk to them. There's um, being a dream interpretation. 
there's all sorts of different things, but there's also this I, I, idea of reincarnation or or living, you know, past lives and whatnot. And it's very interesting because I told you before that I've had really strong um, connections to my dreams and to visions and to the lands. And because I was born in Chilliwack, I used to have, the land used to speak to me a lot in my dreams and tell me things. And I couldn't understand why until I met a lady who does soul portrait drawings. And she let me know yes. about four different, you know her, Lori K. Anderson. There you go. We're going to do a little advertising for her. Yeah, she's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> um, once again, an indigenous, indigenous woman as well. Yeah. But yeah, she did my soul portrait and I and showed me four different past lives. And one of them was here in BC. So a part of me is, is is still okay with connecting and understanding why I ended up here, back here in Chilliwack and learning the Stalo culture. But my next stage is I need to learn um, and figure out my family from my Sequetmuk side because it's going to also help with that identity piece, that piece that mm-hmm. I feel is still missing. And that's that that whole bloodline from that from that area. So I actually have reached out to a couple um, folks. I had a cousin facebook messaged me out of the i don't even know how he knew that we were cousins so it was really really cool and he started connecting me with people in my family so i'm super excited about that so i'm moving forward with with that right now in my life so yeah super 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 cool but yeah so that dichotomous that attention seeking a little bit of that self-sabotage stuff like you see a lot of that but like i said we don't and I, we don't, in Indigenous culture, we see mental health in a little bit different. Like greed to us is a, is a complete mental health. And you wouldn't see that uh, originally in uh, a, a family, things like that. I yeah, to- I mean, like that, that must, that wouldn't have necessarily been part of culture before colonization because yeah. capitalism wasn't really a yeah. thing, right? So it's a totally different, I think, topic, but, but. I don't know. I just feel grateful to be able to speak and have the courage to sort of speak. And sometimes I think about it and I'm like, oh, it's the BPD because we will talk about anything to anyone. Right. It's true. <laughs> it's so true. We, I don't know how we don't get in more trouble than we do. Honestly, I have zero boundaries. It's a problem. I know. And I don't tell people in that way of like, oh, well, yeah, my my suffering is worse than yours. Like, I don't ever do that competition piece or flex it. I just am like, yeah, you know what? Like, I gone through this shit, too. Like, there's some yeah. stuff. And sometimes I don't even know how I'm alive. And I forget that in that emotional impact when you tell some people because I have the ability to be able to tell my story without from by looking at it on the outside. But honestly the more that I've been able to sort of share that story so like I told you before in the um at UFC I'm a guest speaker for my uncle Herb's class and he does um theme women in healing elders in healing you know men what that healing looked like and youth in healing so I've, I've gone in and I've probably done it for like eight years now and every single year that I do it I go home and process one other piece of that story that I didn't right. even you know, notice or are heard, but I didn't allow myself to really experience and process and feel that. So it's healing being able to tell your stories. 
And there was a time I was talking to my mom. My mom and I did have not lived together at all until um, from the age of uh, 13 on. And so later on in life, we learned that my mom um, is bipolar. Hmm. So that to us made up so, oh, that really, there again, right? A diagnosis that helps you understand the behaviors and actions of someone. Yeah. Once you can do that, then you can start processing things even more because originally I just thought it was me. Ah, my mom treated me this way because I was unlovable. She didn't care. She didn't this, that, right? She just didn't have the ability you know, she did yeah, not. Nobody taught her those ability. skills. She had no idea. She was never diagnosed. Yeah, she was just trying to survive and do what she needed to. She had a certain schedule, and that was all she could do. And I totally get it now because now that I've gone through so many things and I've had, I've ended up, like I said, I've ended up in some deep, dark spaces. I've now learned that I have to limit myself. I have to create these boundaries. I have to create a certain type of schedule. I can only have so many people in my life or I just like get stretched and I start to, I can't emotionally cycle myself very well. So I have to keep my circle super small and it is hard because I can't have a lot of family in my life. I can't, I don't have friends. I don't have like, but I have a few, I have my, my partner, my two children are my main focus. That's it. And myself, <laughs> that's yeah. enough in a nutshell. If you think about it, that's, that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of different emotions and thinking. So I've learned that. And that's what my mom kind of had to do, you know, and, um, but eventually, yeah, she, we didn't really talk anymore. And I, she wasn't in my life and I didn't have this mother. And, but when I would talk to her, I just, I was always so grateful because I'd be like, mom, I'm struggling and I need to know where were we living and what was happening when I was this age. And she would tell me, and I thanked her for that, you know, and it got to a point though, where she was like, you know, I don't understand how you kids ever knew anything about love. Mm, She was crying. And she was like, I I feel like, she's like, I just, there's no way that you understood love. And I was like, yeah, she goes, by the time my first um, depression. I couldn't remember the last time my mother had ever said, I love you or given me a hug. I was 12. And I was like, I could not remember for the life of me when my mom had hugged me or said that. Yeah. And and that's trauma in itself. Yeah. But I looked at when, then when she was saying that to me at, and when I I think I was in my early twenties, later twenties. And I said to her, I said, mom, I said, everything that's happened to me and everything that I've experienced um, helps me to help others. And that's why I share my story. That's why I share some of the things that I've gone through. Because I just I just feel like if I reach one person, if one person is able to be like, wow, that really like opened something or whatever, um, then, then it's worth it. I would do. Yeah. And... The most interesting part is I would never change anything in my life that I was just going to ask you that question because Sarah and I talk about this all the time because I always think about if you could take a pill that would just make all of your BPD go away, would you take it? And I would not because I think that my BPD makes me like the badass human that I am, the funny person, the passionate person, all of these things. And like, is it sometimes the most annoying thing in the universe? A (laughs) hundred percent. But like, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. But the rest of the time, I would not 
ever want to change who I am. Well, I embrace the insanity. Like I absolutely love it. Cause I'm like, yeah, mm. that's why I'm like, Oh, there, there, there it is again. Rearing yeah, it's exactly. Un- you know, but it's, you know, sometimes it's an ugly and sometimes it's just, it does, it does make you bold and beautiful and brave. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And it, and it also creates this huge, creative beautiful out of the box place to be in as well yeah so, you cannot fit us into a box that's not going to happen we no. are way too large for that <laughs> oh yeah and you just you know and I and I love that like that I like I strive on it I love being like you're not too sure what you're gonna get this day mm-hmm. every day is a little gift and a little uh, adventure is what I call it now and absolutely I would not change one thing about how I've gotten to where I am today because I have two amazing beautiful children and I have a beautiful partner and you know I I'm just in love with life even Mm -hmm. though it can be so dark yeah but I bet when you were in those dark places you did not think that you would love life ever like you do oh no 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 I seriously thought that I was yeah pretty much done like that's it Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the thing, right? We have to, we have to remember that we need to ride out those waves and that the waves of emotion will see, like, will go down eventually. We just have to be able to sit in that spot and be like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. But in an hour and a half, it's going to be back to normal Yeah, or whatever normal is. I mean, I don't even have a normal, but we'll get, yeah, yeah, we'll get through that piece. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that there's those suicidal thoughts or those ugly thoughts of like, you're, you know, when you, when you want to self-sabotage or you're thinking those horrible things about yourself, like there's some days when you, when you, when I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay, depression, what is it today? Like, yeah, <laughs> what am I going to pick? I hate myself. I'm fat. I should have worked out. What is it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I could sit there and go, okay, hold on. What am I thankful for today? And spend some time just doing some gratitude things and sort of quieting down those voices and just remembering, hey, that's, that's, you know, that's that little person in you talking, you know, let's, let's hug her and hold her and remind her that, you know, we've got this. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get through this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that you're, so just because I know you, (laughs) I know that you're a very cultural person and a lot of the work you do is very grounded in culture. So how has that helped your healing journey and your kind of understanding of yourself? Oh, I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for that. And even though like I was, I, I, I feel like I have a pretty good connection to, to my spiritual part and to that cultural practices and, and things like that. They're not going to make your life not have struggles, but they can help you get through some of those. Right. And I find there's certain grounding techniques and certain things that I do that are just so powerful and so and and so instant that um, I love that piece because I don't know if it's the BBD or the fact that I'm a Gemini. I have no idea, <laughs> but I like to have quick results. <laughs> yeah. So totally. there's like yeah. So there's certain pieces of the of the cultural pieces that are so powerful and they work so quickly that you don't even have to necessarily think about it. And it's without if you don't have those, I find that's where that hollowness comes from um, within you because if you can't like, and I've, I always thought the heart was just this horrible thing to have and it was all it did was you know make you feel pain and 
not realizing that it's the heart that is actually the conduit to your spirit and to your ancestors. And it's your heart that if you listen to it, it will help you to get through those things, those struggles, listening to it. It's almost like intuition as well. It's through the heart that tells you. Um, so if in doubt, feel. And that is the hardest thing for me to do. So listening to my intuition is really, really difficult, um, but extremely important to do. And I yeah. also find that um, the cultural practices are so simple and make so much sense that they're that it's really easy to sort of follow and do. And I think that's that's another piece that's important just to understand the simplicity of and the beauty of going to the water or brushing off with cedar um, the power of prayer and how simple it can be to follow and then to do and then it changes those behaviors or brings up that strength oh that's kind of what you're asking but yeah absolutely and i i know that sarah always says she you know she honors her body with movement every day and that is one of the things that she's just so passionate about and and, you know, she has her like kind of mantras, like movement is medicine. And yes. I think that that's why land-based healing is so important is because yeah. you're just, you are moving right? yes. and you're connecting to nature. Yeah. Yeah. And even in, even as strong as remember, I was talking about my little naked child, bare feet on the ground. You'll notice even in our long houses, all the long house floors are dirt. Mm-hmm. And that's where you dance and you dance. Most dancers will dance with bare feet because you're, it's that grounding in. And those, the other pieces, I think we had amazing um, protective measures. Like this is before, <laughs> before contact or before the whole mm-hmm. rigmarole. Um, but those ceremonies, those dances and those songs were so integral to, to maintaining mental health. So even if you think about um, winter time and how some people have seasonal depression, like, so as soon as it starts getting darker and darker, you know, you're like, oh, and you're not able to go out and do as much. So you start to become a little bit more sedentary. (laughs) You're sort of like slowing down and almost like you want to hibernate, but yet that's not necessarily the best thing to do. But in, in, in Stalo culture, during that time period, we went down into the pit houses at that time. So we were living in the ground, in, in, in the earth, but that's where we started with our longhouse and our winter dancing. And that's where you're getting that movement again. You're getting the tears, you're getting the, the mm-hmm. voice out and, and, you're, and you're, um, everybody's a part of that, that ceremony. And so you're moving you're singing, you're dancing, and you're together and you're gathering. And so right there, there's way more to it. But like Sarah is talking about that movement and that that's, that was what was happening there. All that energy release. And the power of song. Yes. Because if you think about, I, I, I compare it to a deer. So like, let's, if you think about a deer and a deer almost gets attacked by cougar or whatever, what do they do? They shake they shake their bodies and move on, right? So that all that adrenaline, that, that fear, the anxiety, all of that energy that's up in their blood and in their physiology and in their mind, 
shake it, release it, and move on. <laughs> but as humans, we don't always do that. Sometimes we just, you know, like we just get stuck and that energy gets stuck in us. And um, that's how we start to get like sick and physical ailments and all of that have so much to do with our mental and emotional. But when, but in those ceremonies, that's when we do that shake and that release and that, that song comes out, even if it's a voice. So I've said scream therapy is always a good idea. Yell if you can, because if you were in those situations and you were never able to, to, to use your voice or to yell, learning to do that's liberating (laughs) oh totally Um, yeah or going for a spiritual bath again you're you're shocking your system you're you're um, releasing so much of that energy and and getting it washed down into the earth and allowing the earth to take that energy and clear all that negativity and that pain and that sorrow and that torment into something beautiful again so those pieces were such an integral part of our mental health, mental and mm-hmm. emotional health. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's so amazing. I mean, obviously COVID has kind of put <laughs> some struggles on gatherings, but I mean, the work that you do with land-based healing for youth and all of that is just incredible to see because you are bringing that language revitalization. You are bringing people back to the earth and it's, yeah. it's really lovely to see. Yeah, because if you, as an Indigenous people who have been, you know, suppressed and assimilated and all that, like, even the, even when I had to look in the mirror the very first time and realize, like, oh, I'm an assimilated Indian, and how mm-hmm. to move forward from that, there's this weird shame that sits in there, and, and you feel bad because you don't know your culture, and then you look around, and you're like, well, yeah, that was the whole point of genocide. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to get back to that, the first thing you got to look at is ceremony. And ceremony always begins with land. <laughs> it always mm-hmm. begins with the land and the territory that you're in. And you, the land and the territory that you're in is there to express that culture and those laws. So, you know, your trees, your water, your are they're all very akin to those particular pieces. So if you want to learn and resurge and decolonize, it's all about ceremony, going out and finding out how do you make that drum? That drum needs to be a part of a ceremony. How do you make that? How do I go and get that? And there's all these processes and every little tiny piece of that process from killing the, from even before you go to find that deer, there's all these steps and things that you do And it's all about taking care of self and taking care of things around you and living harmoniously. And all of that was cut off and broken from us. Um, That lets them out and that love for spirit and understanding that everything has a living spirit and a shwali was tried to be killed out of us through assimilation and colonization. And that's what's brought that separateness we feel, we feel divided even within ourselves. Yeah. And I think that that's the part of your story that really sticks with me is that of, of course you feel divided. You're, you're being forced to walk in one world, which is the, you know, colonial world, but you're emotionally, physically, spiritually <laughs> tied to My DNA. Yeah. Tied t- into something that 
the kind of general world around you is trying to get rid of. And we can, I mean, we can talk about colonization like it was in the past and it was residential schools and whatever, but it is not. No, yeah. You know, the the foster care system, the prison system. Yeah. That is that is still trying to assimilate indigenous kids. Yes. Or, or families or take yeah. them apart. So it's not Yep, over. and still has not gone away because if you can take the children out of the home, the parents and the grandparents lose their purpose and their their um their roles and right from 0 to 5 or 0 to 10 if you've already started to break that attachment, then you've, you've basically won. And it takes time. Like, I'm not saying completely, but you know, like if, if that individual struggles for the rest of their lives and never has an opportunity to connect to their spiritual self and to that culture, they will always have a space that's empty. And I don't think anything else will fill it. No amount of booze, no amount of adrenaline junkie, no amount of shopping, bingo, big house, fancy car will fill that. And I think that's the difference between that. Our world of of capitalism and consumerism keeps you divided and keeps you separate from from who you really are as a spiritual being. And so, yeah course we're gonna have mental health issues (laughs) yeah absolutely and I think it's that's the normalizing piece of your story is that I mean it would be weird if you didn't have a mental health issue to be honest it would be strange I wouldn't even believe you yeah (laughs) because of course like you go through that much childhood trauma you go through that much um like separation from who you are as like fundamentally as a human being and you need mental illness almost to be able to cope with that yeah, which might be an unpopular opinion, <laughs> but I don't think so. I mean, to me, it's a tool. They've been, they, it, it's been tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, ADHD, I mean, is it even real? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Everybody looks like they could have ADHD, but when you turn it around and look at it, no, I was highly functioning, mm-hmm. but yet I had to sit in a classroom and listen to only one thing when my brain's going like this, right? Like yeah. I'm thinking fast and, you know, but but that's not the environment. Whereas if I was brought up in an indigenous cultural view, somebody would have looked at me, an elder would have seen me and been like, wow, look at the creativity, look at the gifts she can see. She can see things that are gonna happen the next day, like that kind of thing. They would have noticed that and right away cultivated that. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing. It would not have been a bad thing at all. And I like how Jens Malloway puts it too. She's like, I'm pretty sure we all come from a hunting gathering background. Yeah, we're going to have ADHD. Yeah, you better be over, (laughs) like over vigilant, (laughs) right? Yeah, we need to be able to see, think, hear, feel, breathe the land in the area. So yeah. I love, I love how, when you start talking to different people, how they can compare those things or when you look Mm -hmm. at it, right. And you start to see things as tools and skills almost and gifts to get through some of these, some of these things. Right. So, yeah. And I find like, like I said, um, with the, um, being able to speak out too, like that is not always something you will see a lot of indigenous um, women do. Mm. Um, 
except in the last, like, of course, few few years, there's been a, a resurgence of, of females coming forward and being a lot more vocal, a lot more putting and being into that that matriarchal sort of um, roles and responsibilities. And uh, but I always noticed that we were often mistaken as submissive because of the fact that we were always so taught to observe and listen rather than speak. Right. Because we come from an oral society. So uh, or oral learners and oral passing. So but or orality didn't mean we talked all the time. It meant we listened. So that was a little different too, because I grew up in, in an, in an, in an environment where speaking is what got me purpose, being able to be in those, you know, um, speech contests and, and, um, drama and theater and all of those things, um, really brought, brought, brought out pieces of myself, but, but I also, but yeah, anyway, my whole point was that, um, being able to share and, and speak and be brave, um, I think is really, I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's a gift from the BBT, BBD or whatever, yeah. because I will have moments where my impulsivity, I'll be like, I need to say it and I'm going to say it or else, you know, I, yeah. And it's, it's turned into a good thing rather than something that was bad. Somebody else in the room was thinking it or whatever, but sometimes mm-hmm. we're leaders what I'm trying to say, Lori, in a very yeah. long, drawn out way. <laughs> no, and I, I think, honestly, I, I really believe that people with BPD are are so passionate. And yeah, you're right. We're saying things that maybe other people aren't saying, but I can guarantee they're thinking them, right? And they may go, oh, thank God somebody else said it because yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to do it. So, yeah. well, yeah. and I feel, and I feel like we can see the room and we can feel the room and we can, and we, we can sense that. And that that's another gift I find from that. And 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 when we were younger, it was always about imminent danger. But as you right. cultivate it, you start to be able to read the room, read the energy, read things, and use it. Right? That's mm-hmm. a gift. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, we're so much more empathetic because we personally feel so deeply that we can see other people feeling around us. And I, I really think that that's so important and powerful. And I think that's why we do such a good job in the work that we do when we, you know, we work in mental health, we, we are blunt in a way that may not work so well in the business world, maybe, but like people feel like we're not hiding anything. We're just who we are. This is, this is what it is. And we're going to go for it. Mm -hmm. And I think I've always wanted people to know I'm just a, I'm just a human. I'm just, I'm no different than you. I'm struggling just as much, Mm -hmm. but that's, but that's, in, in our culture, it is almost, you know, and uh, uh, I can't find the word for it, but being able to feel for others, being in, like you said, being in that room, like if somebody else is feeling something extremely or feeling sorrow, like we help them carry that. It's not that we're taking it on and calling it our own. You know, maybe when I was younger, I would do that. I would feel like, oh, maybe there was something I should have done or I should have said, or I turn it back into me. But like I said, we turned it into a gift now. Now we can help others who are suffering or who are feeling scared or who are feeling even angry by helping to take some of that on for them. And that's mm-hmm. a gift. And that those are things that we do in our culture. That's why we gather so much when there's a crisis. Everyone comes in because we need others to help us. It's too much. It's too much to carry that on. 
I tried to carry so much on my own and not let anybody else help me for so long that I went into a nervous breakdown. Your body can only take so much. We need others around us to help. And so, like you said, it is, it's a gift and it's, it, it helps us in the work that we do. And there's times when you just walk into a room, people don't even need to speak and you walk back out and they feel better. Mm-hmm. And I had to accept that as well, because that was a tough one. Cause people would be like, I just feel like you're my home base. You know, I just feel safe and I just feel comfortable around you. And I'd always be like, what? Like I would never understand what they were talking about because I don't connect like that. I don't have the ability to have that really strong emotional attachment to people, but I will feel everything that you felt. Yeah. I think that like, I'm a lot of, yeah. Like I'm a lot of people's like go-to person. Like I have a lot of people tell me a lot of hard things because they know that I'm going to listen first of all because I will absolutely listen but also because I can understand like like what other people may consider irrational feelings or reactions or whatever it is so I'm totally happy to sit there and be like nope that's totally normal like why wouldn't of course you would feel like that of course you're going to dissociate of course you're going to be angry like these are all emotions that are totally valid and we all need to have those emotions to be human beings yeah yeah well believe it or not Helena we've been talking for more than an hour Oh my God. I knew it. I'm such a blabbermouth. <laughs> Me too. So I'm wondering if you have anything that you would like to kind of wrap up on. Um, no, we're good. No. Okay. No. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been absolutely incredible. And uh, I super look forward to, to, to chatting with you more about BPD in the future. Okay. Thank awesome. you for having thank me. You. Okay. Bye. Hi friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.